good to be in the house, Lord. It's good to gather. It's good to see each one of you. And um, we are pleased that you are here. As we go to the Lord's table, um, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 12? John chapter 12. I want to just draw your attention to a text that as we read this, as we look at it here for a minute, and it'll just be for a minute, um, you will notice, maybe you won't notice, but you will notice later when we read our passage that we are studying in Romans chapter 10 that there is a significant link between what is here in John chapter 12 and what we will see in Romans chapter 10 this morning. Um, And I want to just draw our attention to it because I want to make a comment concerning the Lord's table. I want to start reading in verse 36 of chapter 12, John chapter 12. Jesus is conversing with Jewish religious leaders of the day shortly before his death, before his betrayal. And he says in verse 36, I want you to notice this carefully. While you have the light. Notice that. While you have the light. Believe in the light. So that you may become children of light. And then notice the next statement, because although it is very, you know, it was literally fulfilled in what Jesus does, it is also very symbolic in what happens. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs in front of them, they still were not willing to believe in him. In order that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He then quotes from Isaiah 53, which is a tremendous prophecy in the Word of God concerning the death of Christ. That prophecy in Isaiah 53 begins with these words. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes. And here he is quoting from this tremendous vision that Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees the Lord high and lifted up and His glory filling the temple. And Isaiah is cleansed and then he is commissioned. And we'll look at this later in the message. What does Isaiah say in that chapter? Here am I, Lord. Send me. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to send you. And you're going to proclaim. But this is what's going to happen when you proclaim. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and they understand with their heart. And they would turn and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things in Isaiah chapter 6 when he has this vision because he saw the glory of Jesus. When he sees the glory of God in the temple, holy, 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 and the seraphim crying out, he is seeing Jesus on the throne. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he was speaking of Jesus or him. That's the hymn. Nevertheless, now notice this. This is where I want to go for a minute. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. He's talking about those in the Jewish Sanhedrin. Among them, later in the story, we will find out are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But, for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Last week in Romans chapter 10, we were studying the verses 
concerning the essential element of our salvation, not only of faith, but of confession. That if you what? Believe in your heart, but you have to do what? Confess with your mouth. Confess with your mouth. Now, it's interesting, Jesus, knowing all things, orchestrates circumstances so some of these men end up having to be pulled off the fence and they need to confess. And they do. Some of them never will. And what did Jesus say? We studied about this last week. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will what? Confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. Confession. One of the ways that we confess our faith in Jesus is in the sacraments. We do so in baptism. It is a public confession of our faith. We also do it monthly in the Lord's table. In the Lord's table, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are told... Paul says this, that when we do this, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. We are confessing him. So, as we partake of the Lord's table, I want us to think about that. This is a confession of your faith. This doesn't create your faith. It doesn't save you. It's not the act. But in doing it, as you come, you take the cup, you take the bread, and then we partake together. I want us to think specifically about in our own personal interaction with God. I want you, as we are celebrating the table, to be having personal conversation with God, with Christ. And to be saying to Him, as I do this, Lord, I confess that it is your broken body, it is your shed blood that saves me. So it is an act of confession. It's an act of faith. And so I always want us to remind us of that. We are not saved by partaking of these elements. Those who are saved, we partake, and as we do so, we confess to a watching world our trust in Christ and Christ alone. Having said that, uh, Mallory is going to begin. Mallory, if you'll come on up. She's going to play the piano. And while Mallory's playing the piano, we're just going to invite you to do like what we've been doing the last uh, months. Uh, heads of household or somebody from the family, as a representative of the family, come and take the elements for you. And uh, there are plates in the back. There are plates at the front. And then after a few moments, when we're kind of all settled back in, Um, giving a little bit of time for reflection, for us to personally be conversing with God. I want us to be thinking about that when you come to church. You don't just come to church to, you know, sit in a pew and warm it. You come to engage your heart in worship. And as you are conversing with God, there where you are, uh, be confessing Christ and um, confess to Christ. Confess your sin. Confess your faith. And then we'll partake together um, as an act of worship, as an act of gratitude. So, Mallory, if you'll play, um, feel free, free to come to work your way to the front.
delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body. It is for you. Do this and remember me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, You preach the Lord's death until he comes. Matt's going to come and lead us in worship and song. During the singing, we're going to take the uh, uh, offering. And then after a few moments, I'm going to come back and preach to you this morning. And then we'll have a business meeting as we conclude. I'm going to ask you to stand back up as we sing to the Lord this morning.
Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 10, Romans chapter 10. We're looking in verses 14 to 21 today. Uh, We will be in these verses for at least another week. Uh, We'll begin to look at them today. Uh, Had a wonderful wedding for Nathan and Becky on... uh, Friday evening, so we were down in Laramie, uh, went down there on Thursday, and down there Thursday, Friday, came back yesterday, and uh, it was just a wonderful time down there with them. We were at Laramie Valley Chapel. Some of you know, maybe you have young people that have been down in Laramie, or you've been in Laramie. Laramie Valley Chapel is a just a solid, faithful, uh, Bible-preaching, gospel church that's there in Laramie doing a great work for the Lord. And had the privilege to be there and to do the wedding for Nathan and uh, Becky, and it was a good day. I'll tell you what, though, it made me thankful for our building, because sometimes our building gets hot, 
but that building was hot. I mean, it was like a scorcher. It was like Friday evening, the wedding started at 5.30, and there was a bunch of guys, Ben and Asher and my son, and they were standing up there, and a bunch of other young, I thought some of us were going to pass out. They had these spotlights that, I, I mean, it was like a heat lamp for chickens in the winter. I mean, it was like <laughs> cooking my little bald head. But um, we made it through. There, were, there was a part of the service that I had never done in a wedding before. Nathan and Becky used the text in John chapter 13 and, and did a foot washing. And so right behind me as I was preaching was this basin and towel and a pitcher of water. And I almost used it to drink instead of for them to use it to wash each other's feet. But didn't do that. When I was getting up, just as I was getting up to go do the ceremony, um, Ben and Laurel were there, and Andrew was sitting with Katrina and Ridgely Geesman, who, by the way, said hi and sent their love to you. They now live in Cheyenne. Uh, the kids were sitting with uh, Geesmans and Laurel, and I walked over to Andrew, and uh, I said, Andrew, I am feeling really sick. If I give you my notes, would you do this wedding for me? And he didn't even miss a beat. He said, sure. <laughs> so be ready always. I guess we got a little preacher in our midst coming up. Anyway, it was, a good, it was a good weekend. Let's look at Romans chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 14. Last week was a very important sermon. We ended with verse 13, trying to bring our study in the book of Romans Together at this verse, for whosoever, for everyone, who shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he goes to some questions. Paul has done this all through the study. The Holy Spirit laid this book out in such a way that many times as we went through it, after teaching something, Paul would address objections or assumptions, and he would do so with a question. He would come to a series of questions that grow out of what we just read. For everyone, don't leave out anybody, for everyone who shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Question. How? How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching or proclaiming? How are they to proclaim unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And it is good news. And we hear it, we wonder, how could somebody not believe it? Right? How could someone not believe this message? How could someone not receive it? And so here again, Paul is going to tell us something that's very important. And what he's telling us here is very important for us, and this is a reality. Jesus said it this way. The gate is narrow. The road is tough. That leads to life. And there are few that find it. The gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many that are on it. And Jesus is pointing to a reality. Although you have the best news ever to share with people, don't fool yourself. Most people you share it with will not receive it. And so he says, what does he say here? 
But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous. Of those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And if you skip back in your thinking to verse 16, after saying, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, he says, but... They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, and this is what we read in John 12, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. Jesus said that he is the vine, we are the branches. When we are separated from him, when we do not abide in him, we cannot bring forth fruit. But you have sent us forth to bring forth fruit, fruit that will remain. And so, Lord, we trust that your word will bring forth fruit. And yet we recognize that many will not hear. Give us ears to hear. Father, you tell us in your word, faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Christ, Lord, Jesus, we ask that you would speak your word into our hearts so that we truly would believe it and confess it. Lord, not only for salvation, but in our daily lives as we live every day. For the just shall live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Lord, we need your word. We need your spirit. Lord Jesus, we need you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet are those who preach the good news, who proclaim the good news. Beautiful feet. That almost sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Our feet are not normally something we put on display, are they? Beautiful feet. Like I said, we had a symbol, symbolic ceremony in a wedding the other evening of a foot washing. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He did so specifically to teach them humility and service, but also to teach them concerning their need of cleansing and forgiveness. Those were worn, battered feet that walked Galilean roads and Judean bypaths. They were dirty and they were dusty. But they were beautiful feet. They were beautiful feet. We think of good feet, sound feet. You know, if you're going to go and you're going to buy a horse, you're going to look at its feet. Because that horse's feet have to be in good shape for it to carry you consistently. You look for feet that are sound. Maybe you've heard the little ditty that uh, cowboys say when going to a horse sale. One white foot, buy him. Two white feet, try him. Three white feet, be on the shy. Four white feet passing by. 
Why? Because he needs to have good, hard, solid feet. Good feet. Today we talk about beautiful feet. Beautiful feet. How are they beautiful? They're not beautiful intrinsically in and of themselves. They are beautiful. Why? Because they are bringing a message. They are coming with a word. It is good news. It is good news. And that good news is this. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. And if you will believe in him, you will be saved. My friend, that's the best news ever. In these questions, there was a series of questions In this series of questions, the Holy Spirit is causing us to look at a reality. Here's the reality. God is sovereign. We studied that in chapter 9, right? Unconditional election. Irresistible grace. God is sovereign. God will work His will. Although God is sovereign, He has chosen means for the salvation of the lost. The reality is, now think about this for a minute. Paul is writing this. How did Paul get saved? Damascus Road, right? Damascus Road, he's on his way to do what? Persecute Christians. He's going to kill these people. He wants to drag them into jail. And as he is going along the road and he's on his way to Damascus, suddenly, it's like a lightning bolt knocks him to his feet, or from his feet. Knocks him to the ground. Laying there on the ground, he hears a voice. He sees a light. Saul. Saul. Why are you persecuting me? hard for you to kick against the goads of your conscience that tells us that the work of the Lord has predated what's going on right in that moment. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up. Go into the city. I will tell you what to do. Not many get saved that way. That is not the normative Christian Experience when someone joins the church. We talk about membership. Men on the elder board, men in the deacon circle will sit down, will hear a testimony, will hear an explanation about how someone came into the faith. Those stories will be remarkably different. Haven't had a Damascus Road one yet. That's not the norm. What's the norm? They went to church somewhere. They heard the gospel preached. They got saved. They had a neighbor who knew Jesus, who loved them, who was faithful, who came over to their house, who sat down with them in a time of need and opened a Bible and showed them a verse. If you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And that individual turned in faith and received Christ. What is the normal means that God employs to save the world. It is Christians opening up their mouth and proclaiming Jesus. And the one thing the world does not want us to do is to do anything in the name of Jesus. You can do anything you want in the name of God, but don't bring up Jesus. The name of Jesus. The normal means by which God saves the world. It's not lightning bolts. It's not earthquakes. It is a still small voice. The still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through jars of clay like us. That is what he is dealing with here. 
He is bringing us to this reality. Last week, we talked about a truth in these verses. Here was the truth. In the sovereignty of God. I began with that phrase. I'm going to begin with it again because it's very important. We're thinking about this reality. All of this happens in the sovereign will of God. In the sovereignty of God, God has chosen that it would be his word that would be the means by which God bestows faith and blessing. So we read this morning in verse 17, faith comes by what? Hearing the what? Word. But not just the word. The word of what? Christ. The word of Christ is what he says in that verse. It is by hearing not just the word. Someone's going through a hard time, it's okay to say to them, God is a refuge and strength. He's an ever-present help in times of trial. Therefore, we will not fear. That's a good verse. But don't just leave them there. Don't just show them God. Show them who? Jesus. We must take people to the person of Jesus. It is Jesus who saves. This week, I want you to notice with me in these verses that it is in the sovereignty of God that God has chosen a methodology. And it's foolish. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. To the world it doesn't make sense. It's nuts. To the world it's idiotic. What is the means that God has chosen to send forth messengers to proclaim Jesus. That's his method. And God chose that. Now, what I want to do today, by the way, in these verses, what we see then is that it is the church's responsibility to send. It is the church's methodology to proclaim That's what we're getting at as we look at these verses this morning as we read through these questions. And what I want you to notice with me then is there are, I'm going to say, three lies that Satan would like us to believe about the spread of the gospel. Not only would Satan like us to believe them, these are kind of like three lies that just come natural to us in our sinful nature. One of them has to do with God's sovereignty. Lie number two is going to have to do with our responsibility to go. And then lie number three is going to have to do with our faith in God's prescribed method. Okay, here they are. And then we're going to look at two of them today and we'll do the third one next week. Lie number one is this. It's something like this. If God wants to save the lost, since he's sovereign, he jolly well can do it. He don't need me. Right? That's lie number one. Since God is sovereign, since God is chosen, since God is elected. You ever thought this? He'll just do it. No, God has chosen something. What has he chosen? In his sovereignty. That he is not going to save somebody. He is not going to save someone unless a Christian opens their mouth and goes out on a limb and risks a friendship to say, I love you enough to tell you that unless you believe in Jesus, you are lost. That's lie number one. If God is sovereign, since God is sovereign, if he wants to save somebody, he'll do it. He don't need me. You know what, parents? God has chosen a means for the salvation of your children. 
You know what that means is? Mom and dad, bring up a child in what? The nurture and admonition of the Lord. Train up a child in the way he shall go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Why? Because God has prescribed in his word a means. That means is, mom and dad, be faithful. Teach them of Jesus. Teach them the faith. Be in church. See, God gives us means in order to fulfill his sovereign plan. We want to believe the lie, though. Here's lie number two. It goes something like this. If I go, if I would just, you know, go on the mission field, then I would be something there that I'm not here. It goes something like this. You know, if, if, if I go, then I will start doing something there that I'm not doing now. It's a lie. A good friend of mine who's in ministry, who's on the mission field, whenever somebody comes to him and talks to him and says, I think God is calling me to the mission field, you know what he always tells him? This is Eric Mock's answer. You won't do there what you don't do here. If you are not faithful here, you will not be faithful there. Wherever you go, there you are. Geography doesn't change a thing about us. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. So don't believe a lie. I'll just go be a missionary for Jesus. Well, that may be good. That may be great. That may be what God is calling you to. But we'll see in Acts chapter 13 that when the church lays hands and sends men out like Paul and Barnabas, they are laying hands on someone who has been faithful there in Antioch. And because they have been faithful in Antioch, the Holy Spirit says, set them apart to the work that I am calling them to do. Here's lie number three. I'll just give it to you. We'll look at it next week. Lie number three goes something like this has to do with methodology. It's this old lie that we all are prone to think, if only we had a better way of getting this done. Something new. Then the world would believe us. Then the world would get saved. We would bring revival to America if we just had a new methodology. It's a lie. God's prescription is sending forth messengers with a message. When I was a little kid, there was this movie that was out. It was called The Gospel Blimp. Anybody see that? It was a black and white movie. Anybody see that? You know, when they used to make Christian movies, they were really cheesy, weren't they? Now they make Christian movies, and they're pretty good, high-quality films. Back in that day, they were all kind of cheesy but it had a great message. It was called the Gospel Blimp. It was about this family in this church, you know, and they were like, oh, we gotta reach the world. We gotta reach our community. We're gonna change the world. And so they'll come, you know, they would sit down and they would brainstorm and, you know, they'd come up with this new thing. So they go <coughs> and they buy a blimp and they're gonna put it afloat in the town, you know, and they have big words on it, you know, Jesus saves and, you know, they, they do this and they do that. And they're working hard, and they're like killing themselves, and nothing's working. They get tired, and then, you know, the guy that the movie's about, him and his family, they're like, well, I don't know what we're going to do next, so why don't we just invite our neighbor over, and uh, we have a backyard barbecue with them, and then we just sit down at the table, and we just share with them what Jesus has done in our life. And the person gets saved in the movie. Nothing else. You know, all these big shenanigans that they're trying to do. They're going to reach the world. And they just do something very simple that Jesus told them to do. 
and it brings forth fruit. What do you think would happen if you and I intentionally began to pray specifically for people we knew in our community and then in a very intentional conversation after that seed had been watered in prayer we had a conversation it was a gracious conversation it wasn't being a shoe salesman for Jesus twisting their arm pray this prayer and so they're going to pray the prayer just so they can leave your house don't do that just share with them Jesus Maybe just start with something like this. Can I tell you what Jesus did for me in my life? How I met Christ. And you just had a conversation, you let it go. What do you think would start to happen? Not high-pressure salesman, conversation. Dialogue. Some of you, many of you are doing that. I commend you. I think we need to do it better, though. Three lies. Let's look at them real quickly, and then we'll be done. Here they are, lie number one. Since God is sovereign, if he has elected someone to salvation, he will save them without me. What did he say here in these verses? How can they believe on what? Him whom they've never heard. How can they hear unless they are sent? And there is a message that is proclaimed. There is a human being involved in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with another human being. Lie number one is not a doctrine that derives from Calvinism, by the way. Sometimes this is asserted, and I'm not here like just sticking up for some system. We're talking about one system versus another. It's not like people who believe in doctrines of grace, who have an understanding of the Reformed faith, theologically what we would maybe call Calvinism, just sit back and say, well, if God wants to save the elect, then he'll do it. That's not Calvinism. You know that, correct? You do know that. This, what we are talking about here, is a deceptive lie. It is a lie of the devil. It it doesn't grow out of just a system of theology. You know what it grows out of? Our flesh. Why? Because you're a chicken liver like I am. Right? You're a chicken liver like I am. You don't want to talk to somebody. Neither do I. This is on live stream, so I'm going to be really careful. Two conversations this week. One, a dear Jewish man who was an attorney, diagnosed with cancer, called, talked with my wife. We're working with him. God brought him into my life years ago through fishing. He was there for my family when I thought I was dying. We stayed in his house in Salt Lake when I was going into the hospital. God is working in this man's heart. Another family that Amy and I have loved and now is in ill health. And Amy and I were sitting at our table and we, we've wept for them. And we're praying for them. Why? Because both of them, although I love them so dearly, it is so hard for me in my flesh to put it all on the line and say to them, unless you trust my Jesus, you are lost. And struggling with how to say that in a way that they can receive it, but then ultimately realizing and recognizing it's not about how I say it, As long as I am faithful and I do it in love, it's up to God.
Lie number two. I'll go and be faithful to proclaim Jesus even though I haven't been doing it here. I want to be sent, right? Young people, you want to be sent. We want you to be willing. We're going to look at this in a minute, Isaiah chapter 6. Here am I, Lord, send me. Young people, we want you to be willing to go. If God wants you to go to Papua New Guinea, or he wants you to go to Nigeria, or he wants you to go to Argentina, or he wants you to go to London, England, he wants you to go to New York City, he wants you to go, he wants to send you forth. Young people, we want to lay our hands on you and we want to send you out. But recognize, young person, you will not do it there if you're not doing it with your friends here. You'll go and you'll be like many missionaries on the field who were just there enjoying the sights and sitting under a palm tree. And they're struggling with the same thing that they've been struggling with in America, and that is what? Being filled with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit is doing something through us. Because wherever you go, there you'll be. So my recommendation to you is this. If you want God to use you, if you really want God to use you, then do it now. Don't think it'll happen down the road. Do it now. Start meaning business for Jesus today. Do hard things now. Have a conversation with someone that the Holy Spirit has been putting on your heart now. So the church's responsibility is a sending responsibility. This word to send has a lot of sister words to it in the New Testament. Apostolos, which is the word apostle. The word apostle just simply means one who is sent out. The word apostole is a noun which means apostleship. Apostello is a verb which means to send out. And so what I want you to notice with me, this word to send can speak of a formal office in the church, the apostles. But it can also speak generically of someone who is commissioned with a task. Now, we don't call people apostles today because we think, believe, it is too confusing to do that. Right? Because all of a sudden we start to think. Now, some branches of Christendom do it, and I think it is very dangerous. Because all of a sudden you start to think this person whom the church is calling an apostle is somehow, you know, on the bootstraps of Peter and has received a special anointing through Peter that gives them special power. And you can just kind of trace down the line as the church was laying hands on people. And so we call people apostles today. And I think that's very dangerous. I'm not going to go into that in greater depth today than just to say that. But, generically, we can say that we are sent out. That you are sent out. That God has commissioned you. Now this happens. It can happen... Um, in a specific way, when the church lays hands on somebody, and we'll look at this in a minute, and commissions them. More often than not, though, this word to send speaks of a mentality. It's not just like a nomadic life that is, you know, unrooted from a place. I think most of us as Christians, God calls us to live in a place. To be rooted in a community and to be sent into that community. Some people he sends forth to other places. What we're talking about here is a mentality that the Holy Spirit would give us to understand something. I am commissioned by the King of Kings with a message. It is the good news. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize. He sent me to what? Preach the gospel. Boy, that's confusing. 
Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them. So what does Paul mean by this? He's trying to draw attention to something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's talking about people in the church at Corinth who were kind of boasting in the person that baptized them. Apollos, Cephas, and others, creating division in the church. Paul is basically saying this, you know, my role is not just baptism, dunking people in water. He's separating that from the gospel to some degree here, isn't he? Because the gospel is what? Christ died for your sin, he was buried, he rose again. That's the gospel. He's preaching that. People believe and confess it, and then they are baptized. He's separating the two. What he's saying here is Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to proclaim the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Boy, that's a scary thing. To think that you or I could empty the gospel, the cross, of its power. How do we do that? When we sit down and we try to come up with flowery words that will just make it acceptable. When we start to think that we can engineer it, And in our wisdom, we can just come up with some eloquent way of sharing the gospel that will make people believe. You know what we do when we do that? We gut the gospel of its power. Notice what he says in Acts 13. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is Paul. And they were ministering to the Lord and they were fasting. See that? They're doing something there. And the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work I've called them to do. So after they had fasted, they prayed, they laid hands on them, and they did what? They sent them. That's kind of like this formal commissioning when the church sends forth someone to preach the gospel. Here's another way that it happens Acts chapter 8, verse 4. So those who were scattered, what scattered them? Do you remember? Persecution by Saul. He's persecuting them. What happens? They get scattered. I mean, they're like cockroaches when you turn on the light. You know, they're going. They're scattering. And what are they doing when they're scattering? Hiding in their holes. Hiding in their holes trying to save their own neck. What are they doing? Proclaiming the message of good news. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at this. We'll finish this next week. Isaiah chapter 6. When he sees the Lord high and lifted up, what does Isaiah say? I screwed that up by doing that. See? I'm a screw up. So are you. That's why we have Jesus. Here am I. Send me. As we close this morning, that's my prayer for us. That as we pray, as we sing, you don't say, send me to Africa, send me to Alaska. Send me somewhere, you know, where it's got a better climate than here. Whatever. Lord, here am I in your sovereign will. You send me where you want me to go. Most likely, you know where that is? To work tomorrow to be a faithful Christian among the people who don't know Jesus here. Most likely, that's what he's going to tell you. My question for you is this. Are we willing to risk it all? To tell someone about Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that in your sovereign will, You have chosen a methodology. It is to take people like us, 
just common people in small towns all across the world. And you have put us into relationships to be salt and to be light and to speak a message, the good news. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I ask you to forgive me. That many times I have not done in personal conversation what is easy for me to do on a Sunday morning in front of a crowd. I ask you to forgive me. And Lord, I ask you that your Holy Spirit would fill me in a new and greater way to be bold. Not mean and nasty, not unfriendly, kind, loving, but bold. Lord, I ask that the people who are here today that you would give us all hearts that are broken. Broken. Over the condition of those who don't know you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together? Help us to be faithful in carrying it out. Help us to go out and 
share with the world the love that you have for them, to share the name of Jesus with those who do not know it. Lord, we pray, Lord, for the ability, Lord, not only just to do it in, in a way Lord, that you're working and moving in their hearts, Lord, but we pray for boldness. Lord, forgive us of our sin, as Pastor Tim prayed, Lord, for we all know, Lord, that we should be preaching the word and carrying the word more than we do. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in that endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you need to leave, if you quietly leave, otherwise have a seat for our business meeting.